In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Good morning, America. Good morning, my friends. Hope you had a great weekend. We're back here on Monday. Just getting ready to start this week off the right way. Hope you guys had a great weekend. You guys do anything fun? Get to hang out a little bit? I got to interview a really amazing guy that if you look at the podcast uh, history, you'll see a part one and a part two of a Mr. Adam Lopez. Highly I highly urge you to check it out and check out that guy's uh, web page and information. He's an interesting cat. He's one of us. He's one of us, man. From the back of a cop car to the studios in Nashville. This guy's pretty much done it all. And he's got a pretty good philosophy on life as well. So if you haven't checked those out, go back and check them out. So I did that this weekend. Um... Additionally, I had some some time to think just about the reality of our situation and how crazy this time of year is, especially in election year. And it just got me thinking about why are things the way they are? Have they always been this way? Are they changing? And I came up, I, I did a little research on our, on our economic environment. And it's amazing what you can find if you just take a little bit of time to look and see what's happening. Not only in your neck of the woods, but on a global scale. In my house, I have like one wall. It's all wallpapered and it's a big map. And it's really change the way I see the world it's really interesting to wake up every day and you just see where you are in the world and then because that map is on the wall and because that map is part of your daily routine when you hear news or when you hear 
anything about the world, you're much more tuned into it because you have this visual and it's easier to understand the demographics. It's easier to understand the supply chains. And <clears throat> I think that's a good segue into what, what it is I want to kind of get into today. <clears throat> and it is about supply chains. It's about supply chains, mega cities, special economic zones. And a sort of new world disorder. <clears throat> you may have heard me previously talk about a book called Connectography with Dr. Parag Khanna. And I've been revisiting this book. I've been revisiting this book, Connect- Connectography. And I think a good companion book with it is Technocracy. One is written in the form of a positive view. And the second is written in the form of a dystopian view. And it's really interesting when you read both of these books together because they talk about similar things. However, they talk about them in an orthogonal position. Does that make sense? Like, so they're at odds with each other. It's almost like one is written and then the other is a criticism of it. Today, I want to give you a little bit more perspective on Dr. Parag Khanna's view of supply chains and the world being connected. The reason I would like to do that is I believe he gives a lot of advice and insight onto what is happening in our world today. So with that being said, let me, you know, let me first premise it with this. There's a really large push right now for public-private partnerships in our nation, in the United States. And while it may be newer to us, it's not new to the rest of the world. In fact, it is a strategy most commonly used in third-world nations. If you read the book Technocracy... Patrick Wood, that's the author of the book Technocracy, he'll describe the public-private partnership as akin to Mussolini's fascism. And if you listen to Noam Chomsky, he'll tell you that every single government in the world is fascist. It's just a matter of degrees. So, when I think about public-private partnerships... Being from California, I think of the deregulation of the electric companies. That may be one of the first ones I remember because I was in college when that happened. And it was being hailed as a milestone for our government, for our inefficient, inefficient and ineffective government to just get out of the way so private corporations could come in and really make things effective and efficient and better for the people and everyone's going to make money and it's just going to be glorious. However, that's not what happened. Private companies came in and they deregulated and they took over the electric plants. And for maybe a decade, they made them really profitable. However, they made them really profitable 
by undermining their foundations. A good way to think about this is to think about that movie Goodfellas where the guy has a really nice restaurant and Joe Pesci's character comes in and he just runs up this huge tab because he's a gangster and you know the owner's afraid of him so he never makes him pay his tab. Well, eventually the restaurant owner gets fed up and he goes to the mob boss. He goes to Joe Pesci's boss, Pauly, and he's like, hey, Pauly, why don't you and I... Why don't you and I go into this business together? Why don't you buy half of this business and, um, you know, we'll do it together. You're always in here and, uh, you know, you can help with a few problems. You know, this guy, Joe ain't paying. And so Polly agrees and it's the worst mistake ever for the restaurant. Think of it as a public private partnership. And what happens is Polly just runs up the credit on the restaurant. He takes out more credit, he runs it up. He takes out a second on the land, on the building, he runs up the credit until the credit is so bad they'll never pay it back. And when that happens, then they set the restaurant on fire and burn it down and take the insurance money. You see, that is the model for public-private partnerships. And that's exactly what happened in Northern California with the electric companies when there was a public-private partnership. Anyone who lived there, anyone who lives in California knows that the reason there were so many fires in Northern California was because the electric companies stopped maintaining the lines. They stopped maintaining the growth and trees around the lines. They cut the employees. They cut everything in order to make a profit. And even when they were warned that the trees were getting too close to the lines, even when they were warned that the lines were beginning to malfunction, they did nothing. Because it wasn't economically viable for them to do so. They had insurance. They don't need, they don't want to send people out on a Sunday to go fix a downline. It costs too much money. They have to make a profit. And so what happened is countless lives were lost. The, um, The billions of dollars in damage that was done not only to people's property, but to the environment is catastrophic. And no one was held responsible. In fact, the companies that bought the electric, the electric companies and were responsible for the damage, they filed bankruptcy and they were protected by the state. After that, they raised the rates of electricity to pay for the cost of of their own malfeasance. You see, that's public-private. Privatized profits, socialized losses. And there's a huge push right now in our country to privatize everything. In fact, there will be no zero work on infrastructure until things are privatized. I think that's a big part of what's coming down the pipe. And it doesn't matter if it's Biden or it doesn't matter if it's Trump. The public, the the privatization of everything, I mean everything, parking meters, freeways, parking lots, schools, shopping centers, everything is going to be privatized. 
And it's going to be done under the guise of an ineffective and inefficient government, which there's a lot of truth to. Ask any corporation, ask any businessman about the government and they will they will read to you the opinions of their corporate masters that talk about, well, the inefficiency and the ineffectiveness of government is the reason why everything is horrible. They'll quote Ronald Reagan to you and there may be some truth in that, but what they never talk about, what they never talk about is why is government so inefficient? Why is government so ineffective? I believe the reason is because it's so big. It's so huge. And when we, when I point out the example of the electricity companies, their model is no better. In fact, let me back that up. Their model's better for them. But it's worse for the people. When there's no regulations, when the company makes the laws, they do whatever they want. When the company makes the laws, what happens is even if they get in trouble, they pay a fine and never admit guilt. And that's the model that all the businesses want to operate under because there's no consequences for them. That's why they despise government. I think it was John Dewey who said, government is the shadow cast upon people by business. Okay, so with that in mind, let me talk a little bit more about Parag Khanna's book and what I think is happening currently in the United States. I'm going to read you a little bit from Parag Khanna's book, and this is a section on, it's called Cities. And he argues for supply chains and an effective globalization. The future is the cities instead of the states. So let me read to you a little bit about cities. More than 100 countries together represent only 3% of world GDP. They are basically small and relatively poor cities surrounded by variously sized hinterlands. These states thus resemble atoms. The nucleus, capital, represents a small fraction of the atoms states size but almost all the mass weight in a world war in a world where connectivity matters more than size therefore cities deserve more nuanced treatment on our maps than simply a homogeneous black dot cities are mankind's most enduring and stable mode of social organization outlasting all empires and nations over which they have presided for example although the byzantine and ottoman empires are long gone Constantinople, now Istanbul, survives as a center of commerce and culture whose geographic radius of influence stretches far beyond that of its imperial predecessors. Even though it is no longer the capital of Turkey, cities are the truly timeless global form. Cities in the 21st century are mankind's most profound infrastructure. They are the human technology most visible from space, growing from villages to towns to countries to megacities to super corridors stretching hundreds of kilometers. In 1950, the world had only two megacities of populations larger than 10 million. Tokyo and New York City, by 2025, there will be at least 40 such megacities. The population of the greater Mexico City region is larger than that of Australia, as is the that of 
Chongqing, a collection of connected urban enclaves spanning an area the size of Austria. Cities that were once hundreds of kilometers apart have now effectively fused into massive urban archipelagos, the largest of which is Japan's Taiheo Belt that encompasses two-thirds of Japan's population in the Tokyo, Nagoya, Osaka, Megalopolis. China's Pearl River Delta, Greater Sao Paulo, and Mumbai Pun are also becoming more integrated through infrastructure. At least a dozen such megacity corridors have emerged already. China is in the process of reorganizing itself around two dozen giant megacity clusters of up to 100 million citizens each. And yet, by 2030, the second largest city in the world behind Tokyo is expected not to be in China, but to be in Manila. So you can see in that, in those few paragraphs, he makes a pretty strong claim for the longevity of the city structure. America's rising multi-city clusters are as significant as any of these, even if their populations are smaller. Three in particular stand out. This is important. I want you guys to note the three he's going to talk about. The East Corridor from Boston through New York to Washington, D.C. contains America's academic brain, financial center, and political capital. The only thing missing is a high-speed railway to serve as the regional spine. From San Francisco to San Jose, Silicon Valley has become one continuous low-rise stretch between I-280 and U.S. 101. That is home to over 6,000 technology companies that generate more than $200 billion in GDP. With a San Francisco-Los Angeles-San Diego high-speed rail, California's Pacific Coast would truly become the western counterpart to the northeastern corridor. Elon Musk's Tesla has proposed an ultra-high-speed hyperloop tunnel system for this route. And the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, the largest urban cluster in the American South houses industry giants such as Exxon, AT&T, and American Airlines in an economy larger than South Africa's and is actually building a high-speed rail. All right. The first, the first part he talked about was the East Coast Corridor, Boston through New York to Washington, D.C., the academic brain. The second part, San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego, Silicon Valley, high-speed rail. The third part, the Trans-Texas Corridor. Now, I want you to think, what are the hardest areas being hit by COVID right now? Those three. Those three. Is that a coincidence? Maybe. It could be a coincidence. As populations, wealth, and talent concentrate in global cities, they gradually supersede countries as the world's key gravitational centers. Cities today are ranked by their influence in global networks, not by their territorial possessions. Global cities amass finance and technology, diversity and vibrancy, and seamless connectivity to growing numbers of their counterparts. As Christopher Chase Dunn has pointed out, it is not population or territorial size that drives world cities' status, but economic weight proximity to zones of growth, political stability, and attractiveness for foreign capital. In other words, connectivity matters more than size, and even more than sovereignty 
I'm going to read that again. In other words, connectivity matters more than size and even more than sovereignty. You starting to get the picture a little bit? In the event of some sort of catastrophic currency meltdown or some sort of pandemic, you know, Pelosi, Newsom, they would be a president-like figure in that region. Cuomo would be a president-like figure in that region. Same thing for the South, same thing for Texas. Think of Singapore. Think of Singapore's geographic location. It's strategic in its position, thus it is one of the wealthiest spots on the world. What are the wealthiest spots in the USA? Well, we've named them. And if what Prakana is saying that It's not population or territorial size that drives world city status, but economic weight, proximity to zones of growth, political stability, and attractiveness to foreign capital. You know, what if, what if those three regions could become what is known as a special economic zone, like we talked about at the beginning of this podcast? You know, under under a calamity, under special circumstances, they could, lawmakers could come together and say, we are designating this area a special economic zone. And I know that may sound far-fetched, but if you look right now, if you look up Washington, Washington, D.C., type in Washington, D.C., special economic zone. What comes up is a I think it's called an opportunity economic zone. You see, they just changed the word. But if you read it, what they're doing in Washington, D.C. right now, I think is a blueprint for what they're going to do throughout the nation. And that is the privatization of everything. What is an opportunity economic zone? Well, according to them, an opportunity economic zone is an opportunity for businesses to take over the low-income industry in, in that area, in that region. Instead of the low-income provi- low housing and low-income environment being provided by the state, they're going to privatize it. You know, I don't know enough to tell you if that's the wrong thing to do or the right thing to do. However, I can't help but think that the model that was used in Goodfellas, the model that was used in Northern California for the electric companies, the model that's used on Wall Street, the privatization of profits and the socialization of losses is going to be the strategy that ends up winning with these companies. Let's read a little bit more. 
Demographic and economic weight gives cities greater policy-making leverage, allows them to maneuver for greater autonomy, and enables their direct diplomacy, what I call diplomacy, with other cities, great and connected cities. Saskia Sasson argues, belong as much to global networks as to the country of their political geography. They are disembedded assemblages of circuits. The more they belong to, the more resilient they are as they configure their infrastructure and reallocate resources based on global patterns. Today, the world's top 20 richest cities have forged a super circuit driven by capital, talent, and services. They are home to more than 75% of the largest companies, which in turn invest in expanding across those cities and adding more to expand the inner city network. Indeed, global cities have forged a league of their own. In many ways, as denationalized or Formula One racing teams, drawing talent from around the world and amassing capital to spend on themselves while they compete on the same circuit. The rise of emerging market megacities as magnets for regional wealth and talent has been the most significant contributor to shifting the world's focal point of economic activity. McKinsey Global Institute research suggests that from now until 2025, one-third of world growth will come from the key Western capitals and emerging market megacities. One-third from the heavily populous middleweight cities of emerging markets and one-third from small cities and rural areas in developing countries. Because prices for goods are so much lower in second and third tier cities of China and India, they have hundreds of millions of citizens who have become sizable aggregate consumers well before reaching the 8,000 per capita GDP and purchasing power parity terms projected as the baseline, beyond which consumption takes off. No wonder companies target high growth cities as their main product destinations, while investors look at municipal debt as a key metric of national economic health. It's, it's interesting to think about. It's, it's something that, it just seems dystopian to me. And like I said, I'm not an economist or, or a political pundit or anything of that nature. I enjoy reading and I enjoy watching what's happening in our community so that I can try and thrive in the community. Although I, it seems to me that it is irresponsible and maybe even immoral to hand over the keys to the kingdom to large multinational corporations. I, don't, I just don't think that they have... In fact, you know, the multinational corporation, their, their sole responsibility is to turn a profit for the shareholder. And that's not congruent with building a better world. I'm not even sure it's congruent with building a more efficient or effective world. If you look, like when we think about a mega city, think about Mexico City. Think about how much crime is there. How much poverty is there. Look at India. There's some mega cities for you over there. Who wants to live there? Look at San Francisco. Has anyone been there lately and just, you know, they have the new uh, 
You can go online and, and check out the poop map. You could argue that the more, the larger the city becomes, the larger the wealth gap comes, the larger the education gap comes, the, the, the bigger the discrepancy in everything. It's just hastening the two-tier system of royalty and serfs, it seems like to me. Which would be a great time for me to reference Thomas Piketty's book, Capital. If you haven't checked that out, you should definitely read that one. It's, it's fascinating. Let me shift gears a little bit and talk about something that kind of dovetails with this. And it's the social engineering that's happening, partly as a distraction and partly as a form of propaganda. What I mean by that is with the COVID-19 being out, there's a big push for everyone to wear masks and there's a big discrepancy. And with kids, some getting ready to go back to school, some not. It's interesting to think about what are the long-term ramifications of teaching our children to be afraid at such an early age? You know what I mean by that? Like when they go back to school, they got to wear a mask. They got to wear a face shield. There's going to be people around your children that are borderline hysterical. Hey, don't touch that. Hey, don't eat that. Oh no, you're gonna, we're all going to get it. We're all going to die. You know, there's going to be some hysteria. And because children are so young and because children respect authority, they're going to be influenced by that. Social distancing is social engineering. The reason that is frightening to me is because when children from the age until 12, probably they're learning. Well, hopefully we're all learning our whole life. But at such a young age, you're learning to build relationships. And if you can't be around people, you can't build relationships. You know, when you can't see someone's lips move, when you can't see half of their face, you are missing out on learning how to read facial cues. On a speculative level, it makes me think that being, I'm 45 now. And when I, when I grew up, there began, I, I would say probably around middle school for me, there was a really big push, maybe even elementary school, there was a really big push for nonviolence. You know, they, they really hammered at home and it was, it was done on the national level. Let's try to find out, hey, no fighting. Let's not fight about this. Hey, can't we all get along? Let's give peace a chance. And after these decades of nonviolence, you began to see transgender. After these decades of nonviolence, you began to see the spread of alternative lifestyles. You also saw the turning away from more violent sports. And it seems to me that's a great way to soften up the youth. It's a great way to put into the heads to social engineer young men to not be aggressive, to not fight, to not stand up to authority. 
The same thing with these masks. It seems to me that it's a great way to put young kids in a fearful state of mind. And anybody who's studied Skinner or behaviorism or read any books on, on that knows that when someone is scared, they're easily pliable. They're easily manipulatable. Right, it triggers the fight or flight syndrome and you, you can be so focused that it's easy to, be, it's easy to sneak up on. You don't see the big picture because you're, you're seeing things in a portrait mode versus seeing the big picture. And if we're putting our kids into a state of fear every day before school, they're going to be a lot more susceptible to the propaganda that is being pushed out of those schools. And that's going to be the propaganda of fear. The propaganda of, hey, this country is bad. Hey, there's all this white supremacy. Hey, you know, this race does that. That race does this. And, that's, and that goes full circle back to being able to break up I think the U.S. into special zones, special economic zones that can make it easier to privatize. I could be wrong, but I'm just thinking out loud here. And that's kind of the stuff that I I had come up with when I had a little bit of time this weekend to sit back and try to make sense of the situations that are going on. You know, I I never really want to leave the podcast or leave the interview without trying to come up with a few solutions. And so some of the solutions I was thinking about that are kind of ongoing already that might be able to help is that I, I see the men and women who play professional sports doing their best to try to bring attention to actual causes that they care about. And I think it's a, it's a great place to start. They do have a big platform. However, it seems to me that the message they're getting out is a little bit lackluster. You know, it, it doesn't really take that much to put your hand in the air. You know what I mean? Like, if you want to make a statement, uh, you know, okay, I, I see what you're doing. And, and if that's how you feel, you should be able to do it. However, it's, what does it really do? It doesn't really do that much. I would like to propose some different sort of civil disobedience. And I, I'm hopeful that anybody that plays professional, anybody that plays sports could see the beauty of this. And these ideas would be the following. If you want to put your hand up, do it. However, when you go out on the field, don't score a touchdown. If you're playing football, don't score a touchdown. Have a talk with your team. Get in touch with the other team before you play and be like, look, we're going to play, but when we get to the one yard line, you know, I'm going to look and if I, if my guy's open, I'll just fake pass, you know, and then, <clears throat> excuse me, and then I'll set the ball down at the one goal line and I'll just put up my two fingers and be like, that's seven. And the same thing for the other team, you know, don't score any points, go out there and play, but don't score anything. That way you mess up the Vegas odds. That way you make it impossible for the guys that own the teams to get what they want 
You see, you can still go out and make your money. You can still go out and, and be the team and you can still go out, but do it on your terms. If you really want to make a statement, then go out on the field and make the statement that you run the game. If you want to make a statement, then go out on the field and make the statement that, hey, we're going to do this our way because that's the American way. I think the fans would get behind it. I think if you went out and you used your platforms on social media to say, hey, we're doing a new style of football this year. We're doing the BLM American Football League the way we want to do it. Same thing for basketball. You know, when you go out there, don't do what the owners want you to do. Play the game. Maybe play a game of horse. Do something that's going to really make a statement that's going to cause a, a really big national stir, but it's going to get the people on your side. Don't let the people controlling the narrative make the statement. You know what I mean by that? Like, don't let... Colin Kaepernick should not let Nike tell him what to do. And you shouldn't be sponsored by people that if you're fighting against slavery, you shouldn't take money from people that have slaves. And there's some, I think we could come up if we tried, I think we could come up with some really good ideas at civil disobedience that would make a statement on a really big platform. On a personal level, I think it's a good idea for the individual, you listening to this or your friends as you talk about, every day, do something that embodies the American spirit. And by that, I mean, but be defiant to authority. You don't have to do it in a, in a really rude or disrespectful way. Yet, I think that if you stand up for what you believe in, especially in the face of authority, other people will find that inspiring. I think it's, it's contagious. I think it gets us back to our roots of instead of doing things right, we do the right thing. And I think that's how we build a better community. I think that's how we build a better world. I think that's the path forward. And I think we can do it. So check out Dr. Parag Khanna's book, Connectography, and Dr. Patrick Wood's book, Technocracy. I'll probably try to do a little bit more on that book in an upcoming video or an upcoming podcast. Well, you know what? I got a few more minutes. So while I'm here, let me also kind of get into a little bit of another book called Technological Slavery. And this is by Theodore John Kaczynski. You guys remember him? Better known as the Unabomber. <laughs> he, he gets into some really, really deep stuff here about the future and, and he gets into 
and he's a very controversial figure, and, and, and I'm not condoning what he did. However, he, I think he really had his finger on the pulse of, of what can be coming down the pipe in the future. Let me read a little bit about from his, from his book, Technological Slavery. In any case, you could never get large numbers of people to have fewer children simply by pointing out to them the problems caused by overpopulation. As professional propagandists are well aware, reason by itself is of little use for influencing people on a mass basis. To have any substantial effect, you would have to resort to the system's own techniques of propaganda. By dirtying its hands in the way, an anti-system movement would perhaps discredit itself. Anyhow, it's widely improbable that such a movement could be rich enough to mount an effective worldwide or even nationwide campaign to persuade people to have fewer children. Propaganda that aims to induce major changes in certain is certain to take great amounts of time, resources, patience, and indirection, except in times of revolutionary crisis, when old beliefs have been shattered. The Encyclopedia Britannica article Propaganda provides a good glimpse of the technical basis of modern propaganda. Hence, an idea of the vast amount of money you would need in order to make any substantial impression on the birth rate through persuasion. Many of the bigger and wealthier propaganda agencies conduct symbol campaigns and image building operations with mathematical calculation using quantities of data that can be processed only by computers. He, he, was, he was a really, really deep thinker. And he spent a lot of time thinking about what kind of consequences the future will have on not only people of today, but people of the future. He did a lot of research on the consequences of how the technological revolution is going to change the way people see themselves, how tech, how the technological advances are going to change the ideas of humanity. And it's pretty, it's, I mean, it's really dark. It's really dark. However, it's, it's something that everybody should read just to have an idea of what is possible. Here's an extract from a letter that I think is kind of important. Probably the biggest current obstacle to the creation of an effective revolutionary movement is the mere fact that most people, at least in the U.S., don't see revolution as a plausible possibility. In the first place, I believe that illegal action will be indispensable. I wouldn't be allowed to mail this letter if I appeared to be trying to incite illegal action. So I will say only this much about it. A revolutionary movement should consist of two separate and independent sectors, an illegal underground sector and a legal sector. I'll say nothing about what the illegal sector should do. The legal sector, if only for its own protection, should carefully avoid any connection with the illegal sector. With the possible exceptions listed in my letter of August 29th, the function of the legal sector would not 
be to correct any evils of technology. Instead, its function would be to prepare the way for a future revolution and be carried out when the right moment arrives. Advanced preparation is especially important. In a view of the fact that the occasion for revolution may arrive at any time, and quite unexpectedly, the spontaneous insurrection in St. Petersburg in February 1917 took all of Russia by surprise. It is safe to say that the insurrection would have been no more than a massive but purposeless, purposeless outburst of frustration if the way to revolution had not been prepared in advance. As it happened, there was already in existence a strong revolutionary movement that was in position to provide leadership. And the revolutionaries, moreover, had a long time been educating or indoctrinating the workers of St. Petersburg. So that when the latter revolted, they were not merely expressing senseless anger, but were acting purposefully and more or less intelligently. Okay, so think about that. And then think about the way a lot of the riots in the big cities are being orchestrated. Like why, why would a large portion of the BLM go drop their signs on the Republican places of business like what what, is it not both parties that are oppressing the BLM it's let me read this part again so so let me try to drive this home think about the BLM think about Portland think about what's going on it is safe to say that this insurrection he's talking about the 1917 Russia would have been no more than a massive but purposeless outburst of frustration if the way to revolution had not been prepared in advance. Had not been prepared in advance. It would have been no more than a massive but purposeless outburst of frustration if the way of revolution had not been prepared in advance. As it happened, there was already in existence a strong revolutionary movement that was in a position to provide leadership. To provide leadership. To provide finance for. You see, they're whipping people into a frenzy and then they are telling them what to do. And we get right back to Skinner. We get right back to when people are afraid, they're easily manipulatable. And that takes us right back to the beginning. If you can whip up a semi-revolutionary crowd, you have the opportunity to break up the U.S. into special economic zones. And I think those special economic zones are in fact the governors who are trying to desperately shut down their parts of the world. So it will collapse. So that they can become the dictators or the presidents or the forever governors of that zone. It's interesting to think about. I love you guys. Should have some new interviews coming up. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this. I love you. And the books are Parag Connors, Connectography, Patrick Wood, Technocracy, and Technological Slavery by Theodore John Kaczynski. I love you guys. Aloha.
Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.